The ACURE Symposium is the world's only scientific conference dedicated to acute cardiac unloading. Join us for the 8th Annual ACURE Symposium August 24th in Amsterdam. Register today at acure.org, A-C-U-R-E dot org. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to Heart Sounds for June 2023. If someone can tell me how it is June already, I would be grateful. I hope you caught last month's Heart Sounds, which included conversations with Sunil Rao recapping the Sky meeting and Davide Capitano bringing you up to speed on EuroPCR. This month also went by in a whirl, some of that recovering from May's busy meeting schedule, some of it, in my case, taken up with a quick trip to the TVT meeting, and the rest with some interesting news stories tackled by me and my team. I, for one, am hoping things slow down just a tad to allow the TCTMD reporters to delve into some other stories we have had tugging at our sleeves to get our attention. For today's podcast, I am returning to our regular format, which is to tell you a bit about some of the big stories in cardiology this past month, letting you eavesdrop on the conversations the TCTMD journalists had with the likes of you while pulling together those stories. Let's jump in. For once, I will put my own work at the top of the heap here because I do think it's one of the most talked about topics in cardiology this month. Several of you texted or emailed me the screenshot that was making the rounds on Twitter earlier this month. The tweet itself had actually been deleted, but the savvy folks who took a screen pic before it disappeared lost no time reposting it. Tweeted by the Glenfield Cardiology Twitter feed, and Glenfield is part of the University Hospital Leicester hospital system in the UK, the photo showed a masked operator with smiling eyes, and the tweet itself read, Momentous day for Glenfield UHL and the whole world. John is the first nurse ANP who has performed the whole TAVI procedure as the first operator. This was accompanied by a thumbs up emoji. True transformation addressing NHS needs. Congratulations, John. We are so proud of you. Clapping hands emoji. If you didn't witness the uproar this caused, an advanced nurse leading a TAVI, I am sure you can imagine it. On the one hand are the folks who say that skills are skills, and advanced nurse practitioners and other healthcare professionals should have the opportunity to take on new challenges. Others, however, were quick to point out that physicians spend the better part of a decade training to get to the point where they can even apply for structural heart disease interventional programs. Many put in the time to find there are no placements, or they do get placements but are never given the chance to learn hands-on skills. Salaries and revenues are at issue too in the strained health systems of today. Some hospital bean counters might like the math on getting revenues for a valve implantation for which they only had to pay half the salary. I am not saying that's what happened at Glenfield Hospital, and I have been in almost daily touch with the press officer there who has repeatedly promised that he is going to find someone in hospital leadership to speak with me. So far, silence. Within a week of deleting that first tweet, Glenfield Cardiology tweeted out an apology and clarification stipulating that their, quote, nursing colleague was not, in fact, the lead operator on this case. It may be meaningful, but they also dropped the term ANP. 
Well, I certainly have more questions and I'm guessing you do too. For some of the answers, please check out my first story on this brewing controversy, as well as my follow-up after Glenfield walked back that initial tweet. A search of the abbreviation ANP will get you both of my stories on TCTMD. For now, here is part of my conversation with Rohan Francis of East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Foundation Trust, who I have to say really stuck his neck out by tweeting what many would not Speaking with me, he said, I applaud the practitioner in question for taking on a new skill and none of my criticism is directed towards them. But he had some caveats. Have a listen. I personally haven't pursued structural training because it is, you know, such a difficult and competitive path. But my friends who have, have often been told, sorry, we can't accommodate that right now because it would mean that the other operators reduce their numbers. The rate limiting step is not lack of operators, it's lack of infrastructure, it's lack of funding. You know, these are the things that need to be improved if we're wanting to deliver more TAVI, not, not to widen the pool of um, the professionals that can do TAVI. For me, as someone who, who's very passionate about training future cardiologists, future colleagues, this is part of a wider discussion that we've had over the last 10, 15 years of what's often referred to as scope creep and how there are certain things that you need to learn in order to become an experienced physician, which are, there are fewer training opportunities already. You know, numbers have gone down across the board. If you look at any craft specialty like interventional cardiology or surgery, people are doing far, far fewer hours in the cath lab or the operating theater uh, by the time they become a consultant than, uh, you know, in 2010, 2005. And so already training has been diluted by more service provision. So a lot of junior doctors, they're already spending more of their time doing acute medical patient management rather than learning their trade. And I think um, there have already been discussions about other procedures that nurse practitioners have started doing over the years, um, eroding the training opportunities of junior doctors. So, but, but again, I think this, this is a, a really different ballgame because I think this is eroding the training opportunities of every level of doctor, which is maybe slightly different. I think there are best case scenarios for those other ones. You know, I learned some specialist skills from specialist nurses during my training. So I, I don't at all want to make this uh, a case of us versus them. We can work really well as a team. And I think an experienced nurse practitioner can offer fantastic training to to a doctor it, you know it can be a, a two two-way process but those tend to be things that a junior doctor will do in their training and then advance beyond and then look forward to more complex stuff whereas this is this is the other way around TCTMD's Caitlin Cox has for years been covering the inflammatory hypothesis on TCTMD Cast your mind back to the CANTOS trial. That's back in 2017, showing that the human monoclonal antibody canakinumab produced a modest reduction in major cardiovascular events in stable coronary artery disease patients, only to have the drug manufacturer, Novartis, announce that it would not be pursuing a cardiovascular indication for this agent. One year later, the CERT trial failed to show a CV benefit with another anti-inflammatory, methotrexate. 
fast forward to the successful Colcott and Ladoco 2 trials with colchicine, an oral drug used for centuries for gout and also indicated for pericarditis. Ladoco 2 notably demonstrated that a daily dose of 0.5 milligrams of colchicine safely reduced cardiovascular events among patients with chronic coronary disease. This month, on the basis of those positive studies, the FDA approved a new indication for colchicine, making it the first anti-inflammatory for reducing cardiovascular events among adults who have established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or are at risk of developing it. We at TCTMD, like many of you, I'm sure, are very curious to find out what this drug will cost. It is available for pennies, albeit at a different dose, in other parts of the world. But to understand the clinical impact of this approval, Caitlin called up the man who has been pursuing the inflammation hypothesis for much of his career, Paul Ridker of the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Here is part of their conversation. For the first time, physicians have an option for patients who have what we've been calling residual inflammatory risk for the last 15 years, right? We know that lowering cholesterol is very effective. We've known that lowering inflammation is very effective, but we haven't had FDA approval of an actual drug to give until today. It really is a very big deal for those of us who've been thinking about inflammation biology for the last 30 years. Yeah. And it's very, very exciting. So that's part A. Part B is who should be taking this drug. And I have to say, the actual label is a wonderful label. Hmm. It's, it's very broad. It, it looks to me exactly like the same words that the statins have for their label, um, which is terrific. But I think one of the things to make sure people really understand as you write this up is that lipid lowering and inflammation inhibition are not in conflict with each other. Yeah. Yeah. They're synergistic. Um, patients with bad atherosclerosis want to be on aggressive lipid lowering and aggressive inflammation inhibiting therapies. And, and now for the first time, we have the inflammation part covered by the FDA. So it really, it really does matter a lot, I think, for patient care. I may have struggled with the climate at the TVT meeting in Phoenix. What with the outdoor scorch indoor refrigeration that U.S. convention centers do so well? But I didn't have to contend with some of the travel woes Laura McEwen faced to bring us the link news from Leipzig, Germany. We are glad she did. One of Laura's link stories summarized several outside-the-box approaches people are investigating to try and improve the grim prospects for people with chronic limb-threatening ischemia. Rates of amputation and death, as we've covered in depth in the past, are high in this population, with Black Americans bearing the brunt of disease burden in the U.S. At this particular session at Link, investigators for the Merleon trial unveiled some promising data on drug-coated balloons in this setting. Investigators from Poland, meanwhile, presented a study demonstrating how circulating angiogenic factors might be used to predict wound healing. And taking a very different tack, another Polish team reported preliminary positive results using intra-arterial and intramuscular doses of umbilical cord jelly to promote tissue regrowth and wound healing. All or none of these strategies might pan out in larger studies, but the key point is that people are digging for new answers, said Raghu Koluri of Ohio Health Heart and Vascular in Columbus, who moderated the session where these were described. 
Laura caught up with Kolori between sessions in the busy, noisy, open plan convention center at Link. Patients, Willie's, Rutherford 5 and 6, pretty fragile to start with, high mortality. Their lifespan is short, you know. Um, as I said in the basal study and you know, basal 2 and uh, CLI, up to 50%, you know, yeah. 2 to 3 years. So of the remaining time, how do we make their life, you know, quality of life, you know, good? Right. Um, and the answer to that is having those wound-free days where they're not spending every week going to the wound center, right? So that is the passion that you're seeing where people are throwing, you know, the kitchen sink at, at the disease process. And, you know, honestly, that is that is the right thing. Hopefully something will stick, right? Yeah. But then um, the issue is how do we learn in a methodical way what works and what doesn't and how do we you know get a proper signal and weed out the noise you see what I mean yeah so that is the difficult part in this space in my opinion because yeah it works but you know does it really work Every now and then a cardiology study comes across my desk that feels topical and important far beyond the field of cardiovascular medicine. This particular paper, published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, asked whether opioid alternatives such as Kratom and Loperamide, often thought of as safer, might be linked with the risk of life-threatening arrhythmias. That matters as the regulations get tighter on the prescribing of pain medications in an effort to put the brakes on the opioid epidemic. People seeking access to alternatives to either find a high or manage their withdrawal symptoms might turn to loperamide, an over-the-counter opioid used to treat diarrhea, or kratom, a widely available herbal substance containing the opioid metrogenine. Sure enough, as a search of pharmacovigilance databases from both the U.S. and Canada between 2015 and 2021 revealed, both products were associated with disproportionate reports of ventricular arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. Maury Krantz conducted the study while working for Clario, a healthcare research technology company involved in clinical trials. Krantz has since joined the U.S. FDA as a medical officer in the Division of Cardiology and Nephrology. Speaking with Todd Neal, who covered this study for TCTMD, Krantz stressed that his opinions were his own. I won't speak for the FDA co-authors, but I think most of us in the author pool believe that this signal is very worrisome and refutes, at least temporarily refutes some prior literature where people tout or sort of state that they think Kratom may be a much safer alternative to other opioids. We don't believe that the scientific community, whether it's addiction or otherwise, has enough evidence to state that this drug is a safer alternative to other opioids. And we, we feel strongly that it needs to be studied from a cardiac perspective much more thoroughly. That is it for Heart Sounds this month. I mentioned Laura's link coverage that I hope you'll check out in full if peripheral disease is your thing. Look for link under the conferences tab on tctmd.com. That's also where you'll find all the news and slides from TVT. TCTMD's Mike O'Reardon and I were on site at TVT this year, as I said, alternately sweating and shivering. 
lots of interesting mitral news at TVT this year, as well as Tavi and Tricuspid. I'll also flag another structural heart disease story. This one actually came out of the heart rhythm meeting. This was an analysis looking at the risk of jailing existing pacemaker and defibrillator leads when operators perform percutaneous transcatheter tricuspid interventions. I'm not sure how much of this is on the radar of enthusiastic interventionalists. These leads, if they are squished against the heart tissue or an older surgical valve by the new transcatheter device, can be damaged and no longer function properly, which can result in patient deaths. Michael Lloyd of Emory University in Atlanta presented this data at Heart Rhythm. As he told Mike, leads should probably be extracted first so they aren't jailed as a result of any procedure, including transcatheter tricuspid valve replacement. Extract, intervene, and then re-implant, Lloyd suggested. Moreover, he argued, electrophysiologists really should be included in heart team discussions so as to help identify the potential hazards of TTVR in patients with pre-existing leads. Search the word jailed to find this story on TCTMD. Heck, just put up your feet and do some reading and listening on the website when you get the chance. Lots of interesting news and videos to catch up on if, say, you have some holiday time coming up in the next month or so. Thanks all of you who are reaching out with story ideas and tips or who agree to speak on the record for our stories. It is always much appreciated. And of course, thank you for tuning in to Heart Sounds. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.